Oi, 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 oi. IGA oi. is shopping oi. nights. Oi. IGA oi. where the price oi. is right. Oi. Seaford North oi. IGA oi. for your groceries oi. and liquor. Oi. IGA oi. Express, oi. there's nothing oi. quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. My conversation partner tonight is Dr. Simona Castrigam. She is a cross-disciplinary creative and academic from Nam, Melbourne, working on Wiradjuri land of Kulin Nation. Simona engages architecture and music in a speculative world-building practice to render queer and trans futures. Simona's work gathers gender non-conforming lived testimony into generous auto-ethnography and speculative fictions that reimagine relationships between the tactile, virtual and effective conditions of our shared built environment. Simona completed her PhD at the Melbourne School of Design, University of Melbourne, in a creative practice thesis titled, What If Safety Becomes Permanent? Music as a Site of Queering and Transing. It examined how trans and queer spaces is produced through musical practice in architecture against urban conditions of cis normativity and transphobia. Her PhD received two of the University of Melbourne's highest accolades, winning the Chancellor's Prize for Excellence in a PhD thesis, as well as John Grice Research Award for Excellence in Architectural Research at the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Simona is a stalwart of the Melbourne music and radio scene, and I am so excited to have her here on the program tonight, sharing the airwaves with me. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Stalwart. Am I a barnacle? <laughs> well, I uh, pinched that word, I think, from Justine Clark at Parlour. Oh, right. She, she loves that Did one. Did Justine say stalwart? Yes, for anyone who's a frequent flyer at their wonderful events. Stalwart, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Rusted on fan. <laughs> Guess that makes me one too, in, oh. in the parlour sense. Right, we're holding, we're holding on to each other for dear life. <laughs> Floating through the oceans. <laughs> well. The chaos. <laughs> I think we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Yeah. The the first question I would like to ask all my guests on the program is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Oh, wow. Um look, uh, um I remember my I remember my dad took me to the bathroom on level 30 of Collins place in 1980, I reckon. Would it be 1981, I reckon? And because um, we were sort of like we, – we were sitting on the Yarra having a barbecue, having a picnic or something like that. And then, you know, I just sort of like pointed at the buildings. And in those days it was just Collins Place and Nauru House. And, um, at, you know, at the at sort of edge of the river there and – and I just sort of went, oh, Dad, you know, can we go up there? 
and dad's like, yeah. So then dad took me to the, to the, to the toilets up there and, and you could see right back to where we were sitting. And um, that just blew my mind. You could do that, right? And, and then he's going like, can you see the MCG? And I'm like, no. Nah. And it's right there. And, and I've been back there. I'm just like, it's, I can't believe I never couldn't, couldn't see it. But um, so I think that was a really formative um, experience, I think, of, of, of place and of architecture. And I think of just the wonder, I think, of, you know, of, of, of tall buildings and of, of what you can do with it, you know. And it's, for me, that's a, it's a sort of special piece, yeah, special piece of work. That overlook the the overview effect. Well, that astronauts experience that particularly strongly when they're yeah, out I, I guess so. You know, um, yeah. So it's, it's a cute building. Why architecture? Huh. <laughs> Why architecture? Because it seems so incredibly preposterous to become a pop star even though that was what I wanted to do, that being an architect seemed like a really good disguise. Did you know it was a hard profession? It's not hard. Ooh. Works hard. <laughs> I, I, don't know if, I don't know if it's as hard as anything else, but I just think that... Um, you know, working conditions are hard in, under capitalism, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and anything uh, that you want to reap some rewards from, always end up taking that that extra effort, that extra push. Yeah, sure. But I remember like, you know, trying to get into architecture and everyone was like, oh, you need maths. And I was like, oh, well, that's me stuffed. So old fashioned, right? You don't need any of that anymore. No, because by the mid-90s they just invented all their software, all the maths was just in one button. So, you know, it was sort of really good. So um, by the time I got into it, I didn't really need maths, but but that was definitely in the early 90s, late 80s, it was all, you know, like, you got to have your maths, Simona. And um, I wasn't very good at maths. My school wouldn't let me do maths past year 12 because no one wanted to teach it to me. <laughs> I think the only reason why I got 4% on my last maths exam in 1990 was because I got my name right. How did you break free into music? Well, I broke free into music. Um, actually, architecture school kind of gave me that capacity to have a a foot in both camps actually and I sort of put them together in the best way I could. So I, um, you know, my, 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 I guess my, my, my queer and my trans awakening was definitely through, I guess, this sort of idea of the city, I think, and, and, and how I wanted to experience the city. Um, and uh, so, so I was just really interested in, I was interested in nightclubs and I was interested in entertainment venues and, you know, seeing bands and seeing shows and all that sort of thing. So this gave me this really great cognitive map of of the city and, and of, of, I guess, like, like urbanism. But I understood it through a very queer lens and so I sort of built this cognitive map of, of where those places were. 
And, but just through being involved in, in architecture and in events at, in architecture, particularly student events, you know, I could um, do things like, uh, like conferences and balls and all of these kind of things. So, you know, it just became an opportunity to put events together. Oh, so that started for you while still a student. Yeah. Uh, and, and it became, was like, oh, I can do a fit out of a room or something like that. So in my PhD, I tell this story about how for, a, you know, there was this architecture ball that we had in, cause I studied in Geelong the first three years at Deakin Uni. And there was a, there was a, um, the venue where the, this ball was, the architecture ball in the downstairs room, they had this ute, it was a white ute. That had been carved carved in half, and they'd taken the dashboard out, and instead they'd put in two turntables and a mixer and all these things. It was a, it was a DJ console, but oh, it was just like oh my god, this just looks like a BNS ball. You know, it looks like Bachelor and Spinster's ball here. I mean, There's nothing more heteronormative, and you know the and and um, you know and and cis than that, right? And I'd been spending all this time in the mid-90s in like, you know, fetish clubs and, you know, I was really into latex and really into PVC and so I was like, right, I'm going to wrap this ute up in PVC and, you know, deck the whole place out in black builder's plastic and, you know, so I sort of like, I did that to the space and um, for the archibald. For the archibald, I sort of like took 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 the um, took the ute and the space, if you like, as my submissive, and just wrapped it all in uh, in 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 latex and uh, and rubber and PVC and with gaffer tape and um, had my way with it, if you like, and so that I guess became my first sort of queer project. Epic. Um, and it was a. I was creating a musical space. There was a very sexualized space. Of you know a very, you know a very gendered space. You know that was sort of dealing, I guess, with those those stereotypes, I guess, of 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 of, um, of gender, and creating a, a, a party space for for, for architects to, and 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 other other students to have a hoon. You know how was it received? It was great. There's kept doing it I think from from then I, there was an indie club that was on there every Thursday night or something like that and that was my job for about three months was just to re-stick this PVC up over the walls it got too much couldn't couldn't be bothered I was like I'm not much of a fabricator I'm not much of a builder you know I've got ideas but I'm not don't really like doing them <laughs> found that out pretty quick don't like it being on the tools themselves. Nah, not really. It, don't it, like going up a ladder. Not a fan. It's not safe anyway. Better not. Yeah, you know that that the way you describe um the early the first early project the early party spaces. My, my mind wanders towards hugs and kisses, a venue you used to play at that doesn't exist anymore. Yes, that holds many memories. For the community. Do you want to say something about? That space. Hugs. Yeah. Oh, RIP hugs. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it was um, 
well, <laughs> what did what I, I mean in terms about of it? I don't know. It's so I, much to say. So where do I start? It's, it was just, um, it's just a place where I think a lot of queer and trans people just. Um, I mean, not 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 the whole community. There was a lot of people that didn't that didn't feel included in it, and and that's the way you know. It's this idea of kind of safe spaces and inclusive clubbing and all that kind of stuff, and you know, and to an extent, that was a place where queer and trans people in 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 Nam felt that you know they they had access to and had some agency with and um you know but it was still up a two flights of stairs so if you're if you're a wheelchair user you, you couldn't get there and um and you know so it's not you know the clubs are not spaces for absolutely everybody if, if you're neurodiverse as well but um but there are some people who are neurodiverse and who are queer, who absolutely love them. So um, it was. It just sort of took on a life of its own. I think from about the mid two mid 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 two thousand tens, and you know up till about twenty nineteen. Um, it's great. It's great fun. We could just do what we want. It was a bit of a utopia. I caught the very tail end of it. Yeah, you did. Yeah, very, very briefly. I'm interested in hugs as a venue for your musical practice, for your for your soundscapes, really, for 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 want of a better word, the the sonic experience that you create in your work. Yeah, I got uh, there's a song Super Touch on Panic Desire, which is my album from a couple of years ago, and Super Touch is actually probably about. Um, it's about it, it's about hugs and kisses, I think. Hmm. Because the album Panic Desire is sort of about this experience, my experience, if you like, of of walking around Melbourne. It's this sort of like this pastiche of maybe of a few cities, but really about the idea of me as a gender non-conforming person, as a trans woman walking around the city and that, f- you know, f- for the most part, it's a, 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 an experience where I'm somewhat sort of, uh, you know, on edge or anxious or hypervigilant, if you like. Um, but when I get to a place like a club, all of that sort of goes away as soon as I'm sort of, as soon as I can see the front door, I'm like, ah, you know, I'm there, you know, like we're here. And, and then I just sort of walk in and have a nice time for many hours. And then it's this really wonderful place where we all come together as artists, as community, um, and, yeah, we have great conversations in all different kinds of places, you know. So on the dance floor, in the smokers area, on the in the gutter, and I, I'm really interested in how all these little spaces work. So hugs and kisses was was this wonderful little microcosm of 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 how those things worked, and the and interior touch celebrates that. Yeah, the interior of that venue was also quite, un- I guess, unconventional. I'm not a season such a seasoned club goer, such as yourself, but. I remember the geometry, the the relationship of the the spaces. There was something like a bit octagonal about it in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it the first time I went there was about 10, 11 years ago when it was the Buffalo Club and I went and saw Hate Rock there and they had a there was a big stage and yeah, and then there was sort of this booth in the middle that they constructed and, they, you know, they sort of changed it around a little bit here and there and, yeah, I, I think they just – it was very makeshift and very make-do and 
And I think that um, that's part of the way that a lot of um, a lot of LGBTIQ um, and uh, spaces kind of work in that way, and that we're sort of we utilize these spaces that are left over, or that they're you know they're in between um, purposes, if you like. They're very run down. I mean, I don't think the toilets really work that very well in 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 at hugs and kisses. <laughs> there was a while where it was just like it was just like wet on the floor for about a year and a half, and then they eventually fixed it. So, um, you know, we sort of make these places work for us, if you like, and they become home to a lot of people. Yeah, I think they do, and um, they they're regular in that sense that you know. We know that once a month, twice twice a month or sometimes once a week that if we turn up, you know, our mates are going to be there and that's how we hang out and, and, and you know, and, um, yeah, we, we fall in love or we, you know, we make a whole, like, groups of friends or that's where we meet people who we have things in common with creatively or politically. So there's this ecosystem, really wonderful ecosystem that is built around clubs and, and these communities. But these clubs are also like adjacent to, um, you know, um, within the city, I, I guess it's like um, they'd be sort of these underground spaces or they'd be on the rooftop or wherever, but they, they, they're adjacent to places like, um, like brothels and, you know, these particular kind of, um, you know, streetscapes. As well, and there's just a lot of queer and trans trans life that is sort of happening here, and so it's these real laneways that are really quite amazing as this interface. Whereas what's happening on Latrobe Street or what's happening on King Street or Elizabeth Street, you know, that's not the interface for for, for us, if you like. It's it's by the bins and you know in the gutter, and you know everyone's trying to get their cars into the you know, the 40-storey apartment towers or something like that. and But there'd be, you know, 150 people lining up to get into a club another 50 people all just having a cigarette and smoking go- and, 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 you know, drinking goon that they've stashed around the corner. And, um, yeah, and like the sex workers at the, at the strip club next door, it'll all be like out the back having a cigarette on their break, but it's really safe for us. They're really important little ecosystems. Yeah, a sense of critical mass. Yeah. I, I wonder, has your research looked into in that intangible cultural heritage from a, a cultural anthropology or preservation perspective? Uh, really, it's from an autoethnographical auto point of view, like I've mapped what uh, how, how those places have, I guess, come to form my cognitive map, if you like. So... You know, sort of start with places in in St Kilda or in Richmond, in you know, in in Collingwood, in in Fitzroy, and how that sort of progresses through, um, you know, the early mid nineties into the, the rave scene as well through the Docklands and through West Melbourne, you know, into the twenty ten or the into the two thousands, and CBD, and you know, then again, and, and just sort of watching, I guess, the way that venues um, sort of fall away and then how many get repurposed and where are the new ones coming up and all the way up until, you know, 2023. So, you know, a place like Miscellanea is really curious for me because I, um, you know, I started the 
club there called the Shock of the New in 2008. Um, and then we 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 did it. Um, we did clubs there with, you know, up until about 2011. So and now miscellaneous that same venue. So what was the Order of Melbourne is now miscellaneous. So when I go back there, I always have that that have that memory, and it's a it's a memory of delight, you know. So I'm really interested too. I, I think like how archives of experience play out in very unique ways for queer and trans people because they inform our relationship to the city, our relationship to architecture. So places that we enjoy or that we love are places that we want to go back to again, but they also form the way that which we might navigate the city. So there are places that we know that are safe. There are roads that we know that are safe. We'll be like, okay, well, we're going to, we can go that way or not. But then there can be, obviously there's places that um, might be traumatic or certain places that don't feel safe and so we'll avoid that so I'm really curious about how we navigate space I really hope that officers that have queer and trans staff in architecture firms are listening to that knowledge that they have in-house and are listening to that inherent expertise that their own team members are able are able to bring well I hope that well listening but you know listening involves giving the capacity to platform it and implement it and you know like if they're not given the chance to speak at the design table then you know who's listening um but i mean there's there's a few things with that i mean it's like you know you have um it's you know it's 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 not easy to be to be out in in the in in any kind of profession um and it's one thing to be out but it you know, to who and, you know, upon sort of what circumstances, if you like. It's sort of like, um, and then the capacity to be heard, like, you know, is your voice going to be valued? Um, And the bravery that it takes to actually speak to your own lived experience. Yeah, and it shouldn't be, you know, this idea of the bravery as well. It's just kind of like it just, (laughs) it shouldn't be, oh, you're so brave, you know. It should just be like just speak and like and and i'm and i value and you know like um yeah it's it's a it's a real it's a real privilege and an honor to hear those stories it's it shouldn't be sort of seen as bravery in that sense i think so it only makes architecture richer it only makes the design richer yeah it does so and and you know and, and i think that you know the issue is that you know um that 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 queer and trans people often have to live with the decisions that um, that cisgender and, and heterosexual people make. And I, I really encourage um, designers and design educators and, um, you know, whoever else I think, I just encourage people, I think, to really value, like you're saying, like that that we exist in the design profession and we have a lot to offer and that lens of, you know, we, we, we can't unpack sexuality and gender as it occurs in architecture or in the city or in planning. We can't unpack it through this lens of heterosexuality or of cis-normativity because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And we can't just say, oh, that's for queer and trans people to do. Um, it's like 
the whole thing needs to be unpacked through this. Like we, we need to unpack it through the whole thing, right? We all need to get together and have a chat about it. Because all of architecture, all of society stands, stands to benefit from breaking down the binaries and rejecting binary thinking. Well, there's a lot of people that want to hold uphold binary thinking, but and and certainly my position is I was I'm certainly keen at to reject the binary thinking, the black and white kind of male and female way about it. Uh, but but you know I think you know yeah people kind of I, I wanted, there's a question that someone asked me in my um, in my uh, confirmation seminar for my phd and was the first question i got which was how is architecture transphobic and i thought to myself i really need to know how to answer that question <laughs> even though it seems like a strange question on so many levels and um you know i found this fabulous quote from uh, lucas crawford in this book um called architecture tectonics and it was I'm um, just doing it riffing it off the top of my head, but it's um but but our architecture seems to be a set of conditions or a set of sp- spaces that um seems hyper vigilant of transgender bodies. And I think that's true. I, I, and I think that's true, I think of 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 non-compliant bodies of which um, transgender bodies are, are, are just one example of non-compliant bodies. Because I think that architecture places normativity on 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 bodies um, through the way that it's coded, through the way that it's named. You know, as soon as we draw a space and we write a name on it, it it's it's automatically got a purpose to it. And if that purpose is understood through cis normativity, um, uh, through like a a, a, a a traditional notion of what is male or female then that's going to have an effect on people who don't conform to, to those standards of, of gender, so of, of, of gender non-conforming people. So trans and gender diverse and, and non-binary people um, struggle in those spaces. And there are a variety of spaces that, 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 that are to be considered. So we often think of bathrooms, but... You know, I think of just so many other spaces. Like I think of security checkpoints at airports. I think of prisons. I think of swimming pools. I think of, um, you know, change rooms. I think of schools, primary schools, tertiary. Or, or, or there are healthcare centres. So many different places where gender is prescribed to be a certain way. Which Make, makes yeah. me think of buildings with arrival sequences. Would uh, like a lobby, a hotel lobby, or quite a formal lobby fit into? your research there yeah totally well it does (laughs) because often at things like lobbies there'll be security and so you know it's um i remember um talking to some architects who they design a lot of airports and i was talking about how airports are i was explaining how airports are just like really difficult for for trans and gender diverse people because of um those how those checkpoints are designed to render us as suspicious to catch us out and they're designed i think it's really important we emphasize for the listeners like we often have been in past conversations that everything is a design decision everything is a design decision and an architect in the audience was like look we don't design the checkpoint we just 
design the space and and the client comes and puts it in and i'm just like yeah but i'm i need I need you to be conscious that you're designing a space where these applied technologies, um, uh, you know, become part of the whole apparatus. They're weaponized, and and that they they are used against non-compliant bodies, of which trans and gender diverse people are, you know, are, 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 you know, one one example. Um, I mean, if you live at the intersection of um, of gender nonconformity, uh, uh, race, ethnic, ethnicity. Um, you know, uh, of, of ability, all of these things, it's it's just like, well, it makes that experience all the more harrowing. And so these are the archives, the experiences that, 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 that some people bring to space and I think it's important that architects are more conscious, I think, of that emotional connection or that, that experience you know, why, why design spaces that are going to traumatise people? We want to design spaces that delight people. You know, we have the choice to do that. Absolutely. And architecture has to do better because otherwise we're not even being architects. If we're not adding value, if we're not pushing beyond the initial brief, the initial A plus B that's been requested, if you're not removing difficulty or a trauma and at the same time adding joy i don't think that's a success in my book at the very least which is potentially a semi-controversial <laughs> opinion because you know some people just want to service it's your the client. Show. Well, it's, my, it's my show of course but um half the fun of doing it. it it rather you know some firms some practitioners just want to service the client that's it they're and, and not everyone's seeking to add value or protect or yeah. use their agency yeah, and there's a capacity to push back against the client or to push back against the the brief, and you know, like you know, it's it's uh, how is how is architecture in service to community, and sometimes that community isn't represented in the brief. The commu- that that community is not always represented in in the code either in the in the national construction code. So, you know, non-binary and trans people don't exist in the not in the in the NCC. And they don't exist in some briefs. You know, there are briefs for schools that are being written and there are briefs for prisons that are being written that don't involve trans and gender diverse people. Um, and that has serious consequences for the lives of, of, of trans and gender diverse people. You know, I think that our codes and I think that our buildings and I think designers must think that, you know, our, our built environment must reflect you know, a modern day population, which includes trans and gender diverse people. So we need to think out way outside the binary because the binary is, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't exist. I mean, it never really has, but it, 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 but it's been sort of forced upon, upon us. And it's, it's about time that we thought outside of that and we've got the opportunity to do it. Totally. And everyone stands to benefit. I mean, we covered this concept quite extensively on the episode on public toilets on this show, but we touched on the idea that all most accessibility features have actually been appropriated to benefit abled-bodied people as the main core demographic users o- over time. And th- that for me is kind of further illustrated when you, if you design a really excellent public building and you get a lot of things right, and it becomes universally inclusive or as much as it can be in that moment. And then everyone benefits. So we've just had a text message come in. 
It says, Simona, how do you propose to make architecture, architecture transgender welcoming? Can you provide examples, Claire? How, sorry, the question was how can how do I propose to make architecture welcoming for transgender people? Can you provide examples, Claire? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in these spatial yeah. complexities, like beyond, because let's not talk about the T word <laughs> that is toilets, rather toilets, yeah. <laughs> not testosterone, but toilets. Um, I, look, I, I think it comes down to you know it 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 comes down to creating spaces that don't create contest, um, and so it, it's it's you know it's, it's it's not just kind of like you know it's not about like what a building looks like or what it feels or you know or, or you know surfaces or, or, or measurements anything like that or measurements. It's it's really about have have the needs of trans and gender diverse people been met like what did the uh, what i really want to do is kind of understand what are the existing um stressors what are the existing anxieties that the trans and gender diverse people live with and how can we um how can we uh, ameliorate them how can we design them out what, what can we change about these spaces that can make those experiences you know, more joyful, more easy, less to, less about contest, but also how does this work break down myths and stereotypes that are made about trans and gender diverse people? I think that's the work. So, um, you know, places like like how do we how do we rethink retreat spaces? How do we, yeah? I'm sure like bathrooms is like the core to like every single building, but how do we rethink what the the retreat space is and again as you were saying that these provide opportunities for us to you know think about that that has that has um uh you know benefits for a whole lot of different people as well um so you know like you know it's like what what are the options in terms of like shelter you know emergency services like what are the options for um like uh, you know, in healthcare, in schools, all these kinds of things. How do we change those people's lives and experiences of a built environment? And how does that relate back to the way that the gender is scrutinised or at times policed? You know, I have a question for you that I wanted to run up your flagpole, Simona. Was, <laughs> what do you what do you think of this take? I have like a a working theory in a way that progressive and inclusive architecture involves spaces that give people choice and opportunity that doesn't push them into a default way of sitting, walking, standing, waiting, but can give you five different choices at once, ten different choices at once. What do, what do you think of that? Well, yeah, because I think that um, sort of like you can be forced into choices <laughs> that are kind of, I guess, informed by like, you know, yeah, you want to be informed by what what's going to give me, what's going to bring joy in this moment rather than like how am I going to avoid a, avoid a situation, if you like. So, yeah, I definitely think that, that that's that, that's the sort of methodology or approach to, to, to really bring to it, I think. So, um, designing in multitudes. Yeah, designing in multitudes, just, just rethinking how, how gendered spaces, I think, are, 
um, you know, just really rigid in that way. And there's just so much of an opportunity, I think, to to reframe the conversation, but also just to, to reframe the lens. And and but also I think to for 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 trans and gender diverse people too that they're designers of their own worlds and always have been, and even though they might not participate in design as much as we think or know or or, or like how do non designers become part of part of that process? How do we let let more people in to it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm not trying to like recruit a whole lot of architects. As well, <laughs> That's but, what we know, did last so week. Like, you know, but yeah, I mean, when I, uh, there's a great book by Sasha Costanza Chalk called, called, uh, called Design Justice. And it just, it really looks at how there are all these different capacities to the way that we design our worlds and the way we design our systems, whether they be information systems, whether they be, um, you know, the like physical systems, healthcare systems, like all of these things. So that we we just have to understand that we are part of like a much larger framework, I think, of of design. Um, so you know, it's just how do we how, how do we involve, I guess, like grassroots community and organisations to come in and have that chat and figure out what the need are, needs are because I still don't think we really know exactly what the needs are. We know what's going wrong um, and we know, you know, we, we, you know, we, we, we know that, um, you know, that, that, that LGBTIQ services have been provided over the years of things like in community, in healthcare, in activism, you know, like... So, you know, things like Drum and Street Services or things like Transcend or even, you know, some of the things at Victoria Pride Centre, for instance, like bring those opportunities to the table and things like clubs and, you know, like precincts like Smith Street and all of those sorts of things. Like, you know, we, we bring that to the table. We design those spaces. Like they're, they're awesome. Um, but they, you know, you've got to – if you're in um, Morwell – that's pretty inaccessible, right? So in the regions, you know, it's okay if you're sort of able to afford rent in North Fitzroy and you can get to those places or, you know, you can afford the Uber from Reservoir. But, yeah, if you're in Morwell, it's, it's difficult. So that sort of regional connection. I think they've just opened up a hub somewhere in the Latrobe Valley, some sort of Have queer I? hub. I've got to look into the building. I, I heard on Joy FM, promoting another station here, <laughs> I heard on Joy FM about, about that place and apparently within the first 15 minutes of opening they had someone coming in asking for help, asking for asking important questions. Yeah, you know, so... Um, Pe- people in regional areas definitely need uh, support but also representation and inclusiveness in their public buildings. Yeah, and I think that when those places are, you know, when they're seen and, and when they're accessible, it just makes people feel all the more included in their communities as well. So it brings people together. So they just perform such important services. I remember when we met many moons ago now for the first time that, that something you said really stuck with me, that when you think about architecture, you think about sound, you think about music straight away. I'm always interested in what the soundtrack's going to be to that, you know. <laughs> What's the soundtrack to that building? Yeah. I, you know, I do. I do think about that a lot. Um, and, 
you know, that walking around town and walking around places, it has a rhythm to it, but it, it has an emotion to it. And so I'm interested in what, how I can use sound, I think, to convey not only that sense of emotion, but, you know, I just think picking out little parts of, of, of the, of the of the sound palette and reinterpreting those i think uh of 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 what the city sounds like what the trams sound like what the cars sound like what does the atmosphere of what does what does it sound like at 6 30 on the intersection of collins and burke street you know like that or you know or swanston street so i've spent a lot of time trying to figure that one out some of your music contains those memories and others other is more speculative, it's more fantasy-based. What are some of the spaces that have informed or really anchored through that fantasy and have been a springboard for you to imagine queer and trans futures? Um, yeah, I, 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 the CBD has really been a big inspiration, I think. You know, I think, you know, my experience study when I was studying architecture at RMIT in the late 90s and early 2000s and, you know, and I started sort of my first jobs and and I just spent so much time there and, you know, for me that was, it was a really big, it was a really big deal because like, you know, growing up on a Mornington Peninsula, I that was all I wanted, I just wanted to be there. So I'd look across the bay and just see the, emerging skyline of of the city and just being like oh i just want to go there i just want to be there and and there's this wonderful book um cruising utopia by um jose esteban munoz and it talks about queer futurity and the glimmer of hope on the horizon and when i read that i was like well that was that was me as a 12 year old was i just wanted to find my i just wanted to find my queer trans you know, glimmer of hope amongst all those buildings somewhere because I knew that that was where I might find it. And so when I eventually got, you know, to study architecture and 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 going to all these raves and you know and, and you know clubs and getting into music, starting DJing, it was sort of like, you know, I, I was living my own dream, and it was really exciting. And you know, and and in studying. You know, what I was doing in studio at that time was 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 trying to force music and architecture together in, in this ridiculous way that um, made sense to me but it didn't make sense to anyone else but that's okay. Um, and, yeah, it was sort of through that the, 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 those spaces became everlasting inspirations, I think. And I, th- I still think I draw on, on that utopia. I still draw upon that that... that um, that those visions of a of a better world, um, because I think there's something in that innocence of me being a twenty 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 one year old that you know even though I'm nearly fifty now I <laughs> sometimes it feels like the utopia or I mean it feels like the dystopia and I want to sort of go back to go back to those utopian visions, if you like, and even though they haven't played out in the same way, but there are ways that they have. Hugs and Kisses is, is, has played out in that way and, you know, there are a lot of ways that 
you know, this place has been yeah, really beautiful in that sense as an architect and as a musician where that's come together. Did you have a breakthrough moment when the sound became architectural and the architecture became sonic? Was was there a point that where it, where it didn't just only make sense to you, where it yeah. made sense to others? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I was at a rave in. Uh, it would have been. Um, it would it would it would have been. I don't know. It would have been like ninety seven or ninety eight or something like that. And. Um, there's this techno DJ from Adelaide, HMC, and he had this sick track called um, LSD. And I reduced it back to its, and it, its, its main components was just, just a, 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 a kick drum, a hi-hat and a hand clap. And I just sampled them, put them through, a, you know, we figured out what their waveforms were as three individual sections and then to read them as, as, as architectural sections and put them into 3d studio and then just did this sort of loft, um, thing. And like, it was, it was, it was easy, you know, and I sort of stuck that on the site and everyone's like, Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was one thing I was trying to build. I tried to build the joy divisions unknown pleasures as a, as a building. Um, in at RMIT and yeah, <laughs> so that 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 was the way I I kind of understood that there's a relationship between sound and architecture. That's wild. We've just had another message come through from someone anonymous. They say, "Hi Simona, I'd like to ask what makes techno so queer, and why it is important for spaces you create within venues." Um. Well, I mean. Well, I mean, electronic music has always been a really great space for for queer and trans people. Uh, it's it's always been a really big soundtrack to our lives. You know, it's um, you know, some of the most influential music, um, electronic music that 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 I've heard, you know, has been made by by queer people. You know, by you know, black, Latinx, queer artists. Um, you know, Frankie Knuckles, Derek Carter, Sylvester. Um, uh, you know, like a whole lot of, yeah, like a whole lot of great stuff from New York. And so that that really has inspired me all the way through, I guess, the 80s for me. And, um, you know, but bands like Depeche Mode who were... Um, always look very queer to me and, um, you know, Human League. And so synth pop's always been a really big, big influence to me. Um, but then, and then how that relates into techno, I think, um, yeah, I, 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 for, for me it's, you know, it's sort of like house music and techno as it formed, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s in Chicago and Detroit just seemed like a very queer melting pot from, from what I could find. And the DJs that I was seeing through the, the nineties and the parties that I was going to, you know, it it was, nothing was exclusively house and nothing was exclusively techno in the places that I was going to. Um, I remember seeing Honey Dijon for the very first time in the late 
90s, I think. So, and, and they were just, they were just friendly. They were just a place where I could be myself. It's, you know, I just went to some really sick parties and yeah, I emerged. <laughs> As my birthing suite. <laughs> the nightclub was your birthing suite. I love that. <laughs> Somewhat. Techno, techno was the con- contraction rhythm. Uh, yeah, well, not at a hundred and f- not not at one. All the all the kids are playing at one sixty, one one eighty BPM at the moment. And look, I didn't like Gabba back in the day, and I don't like it now. So I'm more a one twenty, one twenty five kind of girl, you know. <laughs> and there's something about those frequencies that, for me, sounds queer. Like there's a certain rhythm somewhere where the music gets queer and you recognize it and i don't know if that's when it goes too far off the pop cliff for you no um but that you know it's it's like when i used to dj in fetish clubs in the in the early 2000s it was just a very it was just a a very sexual vibe to it you know and and then and then you know playing playing techno at Parties like Fantastic at Club 80, you know, those kind of like those massive rubber parties that we had before COVID. Um, yeah, it's just hot, you know. <laughs> I wonder, where do you think is the future of architectural innovation or the next wave? Uh, look, I hope it's in, I, 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 I hope it's in, you know, um, like a pushback against capitalism, you know. I, you know, I, I hope it's in community, I, and I, 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 I hope it's in non-extractive methods of collaboration, where we put those on the margins of power in, you know, in positions of autonomy where they can actually have design. They can make design decisions over their own spaces and, you know, I, I think it's about time the architects stop assuming themselves as the expert and the master, <laughs> you know, and I think people have been saying that for a very long time but, um, you know, we sort of talk about this epoch of repair and and, um, and people sort of talk about it in terms of like, well, you know, how are we going to fix cross-ventilation? How are we going to fix the air conditioners? How are we going to retrofit this building? And, you know, how are we going to, well, to think about it in terms of sustainability? You know, I really think that repair is like, well, how are we going to repair the system of power, of leadership, of control, if you like, that, you know, is is still in service to capitalism and neoliberalism and all of these things and you know I think truly if we're to sort of solve you know the issues that we've got in front of us is that we need to be radically serious about decolonization radically serious about abolition radically serious about um you know yeah things like you know like in order to achieve gender equity like the lens of trans and gender diverse people is, is really important. Not only to have that lens, but to you know have that those those hands, those ideas that need to be at the design table, and they're there. Um, 
empower the self-determination for all sorts of communities in, in a way as well that we keep trying to yeah. reach for a speculate but actually give access to. Yeah, and, and just believe in our most radical dreams, you know, to imagine, you know, to imagine the world without private prisons. Like what does it mean to do that? Like, you know, what does it? To, like to imagine a world that, that, that is safer for trans and gender diverse people. What does it mean to do that? What are the steps that we need to take in order to do that? Um, and whilst my, people might consider them obstacles, they're opportunities. And that's where change really happens. But for them to become opportunities, it takes people to see power to those to which it directly affects um, and that just remains to be seen as to whether that's going to happen. So, mm. Wait, the, There's this old I have to say, semi-haggard concept of there's nothing new anymore in architecture and, yeah, sure, everything has a precedent but if you apply the right systems thinking and you restructure the system, then you, you can create this newness that we're talking about. Yeah, and if we're depending on AI to do it, well, what biases are being fed into AI? Yeah, what, what terrible things are those models <laughs> mined on? Yeah, you know, and if and 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 I'm serious about that. It's just like you know, if people kind of go, well, well, you know, like AI is kind of like the future, and it's just kind of like, well, but but there are biases, inherent biases fed into AI, and those biases include biases against gender. And, gender non-conforming people, facial recognition, biometrics, all of those things that, you know, that are becoming as commonplace from, um, you know, Instagram stories to robot dogs at NGV, you know, of which LAPD bought, you know, 50 or so of them, you know, a couple of years ago. It's like <laughs> how are these, how these things become normalised but, but, but how they sort of again they're 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 putting non-compliant bodies under surveillance. They're putting everyone under surveillance, and those technologies and and are, are being designed into our worlds. It's really important. So AI is actually sort of a bit of a you know it's a bit of a red flag for me. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure it is for many many other minorities as well. Like it's very important yeah. to call out things that are, which some people may perceive only as a threat to a few, to recognise that that's all interconnected and that threat can turn on you in any given minute. And unfortunately, the price of safety is eternal vigilance. Yeah, and getting back to the, 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 the question earlier on is like how do we make architecture kind of, you know, like more enjoyable or more safe? It's just sort of, yeah, I'd love to, I, you know, the I, places I enjoy most are places where I don't have to look over my shoulder. You know, and there are some many, many places I have to look over my shoulder. So, yeah. What gives you hope? <laughs> I always get this question. What gives me hope? Um, yeah, I, uh, music gives me hope, I think. It's just, just the capacity to, to tell stories, I think, and 
you know, it's just something that we've always done is, is tell stories and the capacity to tell our own stories, you know, I think is really important. So that, that, that gives me hope because that's what sort of brings us together, I think. That's awesome, Simona. Thank you so much for tonight. And I want to play one of your tracks before we wrap up. It's Panic Desire of your Panic Desire album. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey everybody, this is Art Alexakis from the band Everclear, and it's good to be talking to you here at Radio Karim.